everyone, and welcome to Glassbreakers Podcast. I'm your host, Kayla Logan, and every week I'll be featuring innovators and disruptors. So settle in because it's about to get real. Hey, welcome, Allegra. I am so excited to have you today. For those of you who are just meeting Allegra on this podcast, to identify as she. Yes, she. Okay, perfect. She is an associate marriage and family therapist who received her master's in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University. She currently practices in Los Angeles and specializes in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorders, body focused repetitive behaviors, body dysmorphic disorders, and eating disorders. Her clinical work focuses on cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, acceptance and commitment therapy, and mindfulness skills training for adults, adolescents, and children. Did I get it all? Welcome. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Okay, I am actually so pumped up for this. So first of all, welcome. Thank you. And um, we were starting to talk beforehand, and you're a psychotherapist, right? Not a psychologist, not a... um, I'm trying to think of... What is the difference? Okay, so a psych- it essentially comes down to titles. So a psychologist okay. is a like a therapist that's gotten their PhD. Oh, so okay. if you've gotten a PhD, you're a psychologist, and I got my master's. I don't really plan to do research, so for me, I just wanted to jump right into the work as a therapist. Amazing. So I'm a psychotherapist. Yeah, okay. it essentially, that's it's like awesome. titles. So something that I really like and respect about you, and I always say this about the people that treat you, is that they should have lived experience. Mm -hmm. And a big part of your passion is obsessive compulsive disorder. Would you like to speak to that in your experience and your story? Absolutely. So I think lived experience is so helpful as well. Like the OCD specialist who, that I saw who really changed my life also had OCD and it just made me feel a lot better because I think I, like, I recognized that she understood where my brain went and kind of how it functions. Yes. And oh my gosh, this could be a long story. There are so many misconceptions about OCD. Please tell them because I actually don't know. I don't know anything about it. Okay. So there are so many misconceptions and I was 19 and I was working at a clothing store, like a boutique. And I remember I got this one intrusive thought and an intrusive thought is essentially just like a thought that pops into your mind. Mm -hmm. And with OCD, it's characterized by obsessions, which are unwanted intrusive thoughts. They're opposite to your values. They're opposite to your character. It's like the last thing you would ever want to think. And it Mm -hmm. pops into your mind. And then the sufferer performs compulsions to try to make the thought go away. So I was standing in this clothing store and I had this thought, um, for those of you that don't know a lot about OCD, this is going to be eye-opening for you probably. So I had a thought like, what if I had sex with that child? It was terrifying. It like disrupted my whole life. It disrupted my whole being. It was nothing that I ever aligned with. You know, I'd always loved children. I always knew that I was very attracted to men and to women. And to have that thought, like it just felt like my brain broke is really the only way I can describe it. Like I felt inside of my brain, like something shifted. And from that moment on, I started having those thoughts pop in like all day long, 24 seven. 
And it was terrifying because I had no idea that that's what OCD could be like. You know, we hear in the media that OCD is like a love of organization or a love of cleanliness. And that is not what it is at all. Like, yes, of course, people can like wash hands and that could be a compulsion and people might be really organized that have OCD. But the thing is, they don't like that they're like organizing in that way. It's a compulsion because they think something bad will happen if they don't do it. So... Yeah, your face says it all. Like every- you know, I they can't see the video, but my jaws like dropped. And I'm just yes. taking it all in because yeah. it's it's not explained to us like this, it's or at least not. to me. Yeah, and people misuse the term so much that I had no idea what I was dealing with for like a full year because I would never think that this is what OCD entails, even though it's a very common experience with OCD, and. Wow. Yeah. And so I lived a year of my life. Like, I mean, it destroyed me. It was, it was terrifying because you're having these thoughts and I knew they were in my mind. Like I knew that I wasn't schizophrenic. I knew that I wasn't hearing them like, you know, from the outside of my brain, Mm -hmm. but it was on repeat. Like literally the last thing I would ever want to think about just replayed all day long. And it really makes you start to question your character because you know, I hate these thoughts. They terrify me. I don't want them here. But then you start to think, well, why am I having these thoughts in the first place? So I kind of got to this point where I was just suffering so deeply. Like I was crying in the office at work. I was crying in the bathroom at work. I would go outside to cry, even though I was really high functioning. Like I was working in PR, I was thriving. And one of my colleagues, well, actually, let's like, let's rewind a little bit. Mm -hmm. there was there was one night and I remember this night in particular I remember a lot of my days and nights with OCD based on like the thoughts that I had which is kind of sad but I went to an event with a client it was at I think it was at like Paramount Studios in LA and I got home that night and I just thought to myself like if I don't figure out what this is like I'm not gonna live anymore like Mm -hmm. it was to that point where oh I feel like this is gonna make me cry um it was like, it was unbearable, you know, and I wasn't going to live like that forever. I just wasn't like, I remember thinking to myself, like, if this goes on, like, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do it. You know, it took so, Mm. it took everything in me to live for like the few years that I did with the OCD that bad. So I decided, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to Google it, even though I'd been putting that off for a year, which most of us would think like, why don't you just Google that, you know, like, and try to figure out what it is. But I thought like, I must be a pedophile. I'm having these thoughts. I don't want to Google this because it's going to confirm like what I am, even though the thoughts were like the very last thing I'd want to think. Like I would avoid kids as a compulsion. I would avoid, I mean, I would avoid so many things and because that was my compulsion. That was my way of making sure that nothing bad ever happened. Mm. Yeah. I would perform mental compulsions to try to like ruminate and solve and figure out whether or not like I was this person. I would try to push away my thoughts and fight with them, which only made them come back even stronger. So I was like, you know what? I have to do this. I Googled like, why am I having these thoughts? obviously Mm -hmm. terrified at what I was going to find. Yeah. And something about OCD popped up because like the way I typed it into Google was like, why am I having these unwanted thoughts? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I ever liked the thought. Like I was horrified. They destroyed me. So I Googled it and I found stuff about OCD, but I still wasn't convinced because of everything that we hear in the media. 
It's like, there's no way that I have OCD when people describe OCD as like this love of organization. Like this just can't be possible. Well, okay. Actually, I was super interested. My mom says a lot. She goes, that's my OCD. Whenever Mm -hmm. she says she wants things organized, which I retort, that's offensive to people who actually have OCD because you're undiagnosed. You do not have the characteristics that I know of. So I'm super intrigued to learn about this and to know about the details in depth because that's not something... I've ever heard mainstream. And I feel like people who may go through this, they'd be scared to look this up as well because you would think there's something wrong with me. Like you would demonize yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I like, I know this is going to sound like a lot of people are going to say like what, but I used to think like I would rather have cancer than deal with what I'm dealing with. Okay. That is such an interesting thought because I struggle with anxiety and depression and I used to say that too. And I know that sounds so morbid, but if it was cancer, you could physically see what it is and you could treat it. Yep. And I try to explain that to people like, you know what you're dealing with, but when it's mental health, there's no fix. Yeah, there's not. Like, it's like your brain is wired differently. And I thought to myself, like my brain is broken And there's also no escape from it. You know, like Mm -hmm. I was with and am with my brain all day long as we all are. So it's like these thoughts just kept coming into my mind and like intrusive images as well. I would get like intrusive images of like these thoughts that I was having horrified me and there was just no escape. And so to Mm -hmm. me, I thought like, I'd rather have cancer. I'd rather have something physically wrong that I could go to the doctor and they could say like, let's treat this. Like we can possibly get rid of this. I, I can understand that. Yeah. So I found out that it was OCD. still didn't really believe it Mm -hmm. and still kind of just carried on with my life until one of my friends at work saw how bad I was struggling. And she said like, this is it. Like you really need to see a therapist. She picked up her phone at work. She um, called a therapist of hers who found me, my first therapist, Lori, who is literally like my whole life. I love and adore her, but Um, I'm still seeing her now and like, I see her for other things. Like she's not the OCD specialist that really changed my life. But when I saw her even not being an OCD specialist, she was first session. Okay. So you have OCD, which to me, I would feel like, no, like there's absolutely no way, you know, and even going to see her and talk about that was terrifying because a lot of people with OCD don't see therapists because they're so afraid that their therapist is going to report them. You know, like with mandated reporting laws. Holy, okay. I had to mute that because um, I had to mute my voice. The dogs keep barking because my parents wanted to get um, ice cream. But wait a second. Hold on a second. So this is very, like these thoughts are very common. Oh, so common. So common. There's like so many different like OCD themes too. Okay. I'd love, I'd love to divulge more yeah. into this. This is like... This is unbelievably eye-opening. Yeah, it is. Wow. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I can understand the fear surrounding sharing certain aspects when it comes to your mental health um, because I know people say you can be formed quite easily, but in Canada, it's actually not that easy Mm -hmm. because we don't have the space to Mm -hmm. hold people, but that fear is so real. And it's yep. not just like fear of like being formed as when you're committed, but mm-hmm. I mean like the fear of the judgment of the label of the, 
the defining of what this may be there. It's scary. I can't even imagine having those thoughts, what that felt like for you. Absolutely terrifying. And like with OCD, there are so many different themes. We call it OCD themes. At the end of the day, they're all just intrusive and unwanted thoughts. But a lot of the time people get like harm obsessions, which are unwanted thoughts about harming others. So people get like a lot of my clients have thoughts that pop in like, what if I stabbed my husband in the middle of the night? So they lock up all the knives as the compulsion and they like, they scoot away from their husband in the bed and like the thoughts are unwanted, they're irrational. It's nothing that the sufferer would ever want to carry out, but the brain keeps producing those thoughts. Wow. Yeah. And so with things like the pedophile obsessions or the harm obsessions, like we are told, like if you go to a therapist and you disclose these things, like you're going to be reported. Yes. Even though like nobody with OCD is out there acting on these thoughts, like they're less likely than somebody that doesn't have OCD because they're so afraid of their own thoughts and they hate them. Mm. But it really deters a lot of people from accessing treatment because they don't understand this is OCD and this is an unwanted thought. Wow. Wow. And the therapist on the same token, like the therapist also has to understand what OCD is. And sadly, a lot of therapists don't. Like if I went to just any therapist that wasn't like at least aware of OCD or trained in it, like I could have possibly been reported. Oh my goodness. And you wouldn't yeah. know to seek a specialist because you don't oh. know you're going through OCD. Yeah. So it's kind of like the luck of the lottery of who you get. I feel so lucky, even though it was like the worst experience of my life. Like I do feel very lucky because there are people who get like falsely hospitalized. Like some people mm. have suicidal obsessions where they get the thought, like, what if I slip my wrist? They would never want to do it. Like they identify, this is not something I want. Whereas someone who is suicidal, like aligns with the thoughts, you know, more egocentric. And I've seen people who have gone to a therapist and say like, you know, I'm having these thoughts. I hate them. I would never do this to myself. And the therapist wrongly hospitalizes them. So it really does take like a deep understanding of what OCD is, which unfortunately a lot of people don't have because of the media and Look at Khloe Kardashian who coined the phrase close CD because she loves to organize her pantry. I know. In my head, I'm like, (laughs) don't even get me started on that. So yeah, it's, it's terrifying. And it's so many people out there suffer silently with no idea what it is that they're going through. And so many people suffer for like 10 to 15 years before even accessing treatment. So I feel lucky in that regard that it was only like a year and a half for me. Wow. Now, what other themes are prevalent that someone might be struggling with? So like harm obsessions. What if I harmed myself or someone else? Pedophile obsessions. There are sexual orientation obsessions where the sufferer is like essentially obsessed with figuring out their real and true sexual identity. So let's say like someone who's gay might get a bunch of intrusive thoughts. Like what if you're straight? What if you're lying to people? Even though they know like no, I know what my identity is. Their mm-hmm. OCD makes them doubt that. There's postpartum obsessions, and a lot of moms don't know this. So, like a lot of new moms, or not a lot, but some new moms um, will get like obsessions about what if I harm my new baby? What if harm befalls the new baby? Like, what if it stops breathing in its sleep? 
So they perform a bunch of compulsions, like, you know, putting breathing monitors on the baby and checking it multiple times and waking up every 10 minutes to make sure the baby's alive. So there's postpartum obsessions, there's relationship obsessions where people have intrusive and unwanted thoughts about their partner. You know, like they could be married for 10 years, very much so in love. And then they start getting intrusive thoughts like this isn't the one for you. Or what if you don't love your partner enough? And that freaks them out. Um, religious obsessions. Some people get like scrupulous or scrupulosity is what it's called. So like unwanted thoughts about God, unwanted thoughts about having sex with God, like really obsessions can latch on to almost anything. Wow. I had no clue. Like mainstream media makes it seem like it's like counting fingers, closing doors. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that is like, like that can be a compulsion. Like people can check locks multiple times, but the reality is that like so many people with OCD struggle with the more taboo obsessions and like the compulsions are often mental for the more taboo ones. So people wouldn't even know, like nobody that ever like saw me or meets me would know that I have OCD unless I said to them, I have OCD because I don't do physical compulsions. What? Oh, I didn't. I'm like, I'm flabbergasted. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even know there was like mental compulsion. Oh, there's mental compulsion. Physical. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's like, there's a, a, a phrase essentially, or a term that people use. It's called purely obsessional OCD. And that is used for people who like have the obsessions and the mental compulsions. So everything is in your mind. People call it pure O as a nickname. And not a lot of people know about that. Wow. So when you were becoming a psychotherapist mm -hmm. at that time, did you already know you had OCD or did this kind of your experience of it lead your way to your educational path and work? Yes. The second one for sure. I was working in PR when like the OCD um, started and, or like I was about to work in PR and I was realizing over time that it wasn't for me. And when I got the right treatment with my therapist, like Lori, first of all, like she is my biggest inspiration and she is why I went into this field. And then when I saw like how effective the right treatment can be, it really inspired me to want to do this work with clients. And to That's like- incredible. You. And to be a therapist that can say like, I have OCD too. And I, I'm on the other side of this, you know, like I was once in the couch and now I'm in the therapist chair. That actually makes a huge difference. Like I've had therapists who I didn't feel related to me at all. And I felt were really cold and it just didn't help in my healing whatsoever. And then I had therapists who dealt with very similar issues and they could relate to their experiences. And I didn't feel as hopeless. Absolutely. And it was more inspiring and understanding. And I personally, a lot of people may not agree with this, but I feel like if you're going to be in this field, you should have lived experience. So you have the empathy and compassion to yeah. be able to help others truly understand what they're Absolutely. going through. Yeah. And a lot of therapists do get into the field because they've struggled with certain things. And I think especially when it comes to like OCD and eating disorders and depression, like it really helps to have a therapist who understands and has been through it. No, I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, this is so, I'm like, I'm so intrigued in this. So like when you talked about getting the proper help and treatment, what did that look like for you? And how does that differ for others? Yeah, this is a really important question because 
there is a specific type of treatment that is um, evidence-based and really effective for OCD. And that's called exposure and response prevention. Okay, yes, let's yeah. hear what this is. Okay, so it's essentially, it's a part of cognitive behavioral therapy. And what it is, is you expose yourself to the thing that makes you uncomfortable and you sit with the anxiety and discomfort without performing compulsions. So for instance, like okay. I was having these intrusive thoughts, terrified me. I never wanted to say them out loud. I wouldn't write them down. So one of my exposures was you're going to write down these thoughts multiple times and you're going to tolerate that anxiety and discomfort. So over time, you learn to kind of okay. habituate to the obsession, like you habituate to the thing that you fear or you rewire the brain. Well, in both instances, you rewire the brain, but habituation and then also like, what is it called? Um, I'm losing my train of thought, something learning. That's okay. I can cut this okay. part out and then just put it right when you get like the name. You can okay. even Google it if you want. Okay. It's, I think it's inhibitory learning. Let me Google this for Yeah, one. do it up. This is like a new, um, it's a new thing. At first it was habituation and now people are inhibitory learning. Okay. Yeah. It's inhibitory learning. Okay. So, okay. Perfect. So just jump in with that. Okay. Yep. Okay, yeah. So habituation or inhibitory learning. And essentially it's like you either learn that like the emotional responses that you're having to this trigger are safe. You learn that like in these instances, the false alarms that you're feeling in your brain are not actually real alarms and that you're not in danger or you habituate to the obsession. And because you've exposed yourself to something over and over again, it is naturally less anxiety provoking over time. And the other really important part of exposure and response prevention is the response prevention. And that's cutting out compulsions. Okay. And yeah. So like if I am, let's say I have harm obsessions and I'm afraid that I'm going to stab my partner during the middle of the night, an exposure I might have my client do is you're going to leave the knife on your nightstand and you're going to go to bed. And response prevention is we're not going to move the nightstand during the middle of the night we're not gonna stay awake to prevent something bad from happening. You're gonna do the exposure and you are going to tolerate that anxiety and discomfort. Keeping in mind that we always do assessments with clients and we very much so know what's ego dystonic, meaning like the sufferer absolutely hates their thoughts and would not wanna carry them out versus someone that is actually having homicidal ideation. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I've heard of this type of therapy before many <laughs> years ago. So I have anxiety and panic attacks and it's a fear around transportation and having to use the washroom. And it's something I'm really embarrassed about because it affects my systematic nervous system. So I can't control my bowels. So at one time someone had suggested this to take many bus rides. And in my mind, that was never going to happen. Oh yeah. But this is intriguing to me. So, okay. 
I know in Canada, personally, we have a lot of issues with the healthcare and getting access to therapists. Now, if someone knows that they're struggling, is this something that someone could like read a book on and help themselves with? Or is this strictly something you should do in therapy to make sure you have the professional supervision for? Yeah, I mean, so... There are some really incredible books out there. Like John Hirschfield has some amazing books like Overcoming Harm OCD. There's The Imp of the Mind by Lee Bear is one of my favorite books. And people can read these books and like learn tools and really understand what it is that they're experiencing. I would definitely recommend working through exposure and response prevention with a therapist. Yeah. It's often really difficult without one, but on the other um, like side of that token, I know that exposure and response prevention is a specialty and there aren't enough therapists who do specialize in the treatment of OCD. So it can be expensive. A lot of therapists have really long wait lists and that leaves people who can't access treatments feeling like they don't really have many options. That's challenging. That's, that's like, that's the biggest struggle. Like I've literally waited to see like, um, like I've waited six months in Toronto to see a psychiatrist. Now our healthcare is covered. So we have a longer wait list when it comes to certain things. Um, and then I found out it was a consultation and then all they did was recommend to change one of my medications and said, read these three books. And now pretty much the way that people are doing it this could just be this practitioner. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They said the way people are doing it is they'll read books and you just teach yourself the techniques and coping skills. And I'm like, is this where the healthcare system has gone? Now, someone who's kind of going through OCD mm-hmm. in like, say the ideal situation, what would that treatment look like for them? So finding an OCD specialist and finding an OCD specialist that not only says they do CBT, but that they specialize in exposure and response prevention. A big problem is that like a lot of therapists will say that they specialize in multiple things. Like if you go to psychologytoday.com and you type in OCD, you'll see a list of therapists and they claim that they specialize in 20 different disorders and they'll list Mm. OCD as one of them. And most of the time these therapists are doing traditional talk therapy, which is very counterproductive to OCD treatment really now what what does that look like and why is that so a lot of like especially psychodynamic therapists will look for insight into why the client might be having these thoughts and with OCD there's no rhyme or reason it's okay very biological so like there is um there's a lot of research about genes specifically that people with OCD have so it's super biological it's a medical brain disorder And there's not a reason that someone has to be having these thoughts. If I went to like a really psychoanalytic talk therapist, they would probably look into like, were you molested as a child? Or are you actually a pedophile? Which a lot of people with OCD get from talk therapists when they go to them. They'll say like, okay, well, do you really want to kill your husband? Or you must really be in the wrong relationship if you're having these thoughts. And it's heartbreaking because it's not the case. So talk therapy is very counterproductive and also because essentially talk therapy is one big compulsion. If you're going to a therapist and you're ruminating and you're trying to figure out why you're having these thoughts, highly compulsive, and it keeps the person stuck in the obsessive compulsive cycle. So you're essentially paying a talk therapist to make your OCD worse, which is awful. 
And especially when these talk therapists will say things like your thoughts mean something about you and we need to figure out what this is. The person is quite simply just having intrusive thoughts that terrify them because their brain is wired differently and they're responding compulsively. There's not meaning to be made out of them. That's incredible. I mean, it's yeah. not incredible to have those thoughts, but it's incredible <laughs> to have it put that way. Like, I feel like if anyone listening to this is going through that, that do must not give them some kind of comfort. Yeah. Do not see a talk therapist. That is like the number one thing. So many people waste years of their time. So many people waste a ton of money seeing these talk therapists. And it's like three years later, they feel like they're worse off than they were before they started treatment. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So say someone like myself, I wouldn't know to look for someone who specializes mm -hmm. in it. What mm -hmm. are you looking for? If you have kind of an idea. Yeah. So someone that says CBT and exposure and response prevention asking, like I always have, like I, I tell like through my Instagram, for instance, if I'm posting about like what to look for in an OCD specialist, I'll talk about specific questions to ask. Like amazing. Where, yeah. Like where did you get your training in the treatment of OCD? Have you worked with like this obsessional theme? How long have you worked with, you know, treating OCD? What do you utilize? What would treatment look like? So the sufferer really has an understanding of whether or not the therapist like gets it. There are some things that we like that are red flags. If a, if a therapist that a client is interviewing or a potential client is interviewing says things like snap a rubber band every time you have those thoughts, or we're going to work on like pushing away those thoughts and putting up the red stop sign. Those would be big red flags because we're not I'm laughing because I've been there. Oh God. And, and it's like, please. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, Oh no, that was wrong. Okay. No. <laughs> well, here's the thing that a lot of people don't know is like, we can't stop intrusive thoughts like whatever pops into our mind is going to pop into our mind whether or not we like the thought you know and it's kind of like that pink elephant thing when people say don't think about a pink elephant whatever you do don't think about a pink elephant obviously right now i'm thinking about a pink elephant same yeah. thing with our thoughts when you tell someone you can't think something or you can't feel something you're going to think and feel that even more so a lot of the work is practicing mindfulness and practicing acceptance, like accepting the presence of these thoughts and feelings. Now, I have a question about that because when I think yeah. about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, mm -hmm. I think about changing the thought pattern. So stopping it with a red light. Whereas when I think mm -hmm. about DBT, I think about accepting it, letting that moment have that thought and moving on. Mm -hmm. So where does the CBT come in when it comes to OCD and therapy? Yeah. So the cognitive work, essentially there are a lot of cognitive distortions that people with OCD experience. Okay. So we'll usually go over cognitive distortions, which are errors in thinking as like the most basic tool or technique for a client. So a lot of people with OCD catastrophize, like they'll go to the worst possible case scenario in their brain without looking for evidence that says otherwise. Or emotional reasoning is a really big cognitive distortion that people with OCD have in which they feel something so strongly that they believe it to be true. So because with OCD, the person is getting so many false alarms from their hyperactive fear center in the brain, they're feeling like these thoughts are real and true and dangerous. So I point out like distorted thought processes at first, and that's the cognitive part of it. 
the exposure and response prevention is very behavioral. Like I'll often okay. leave the office with my clients to do exposures. We'll go to grocery stores. We'll go to parks. We'll interact with people. So it's very, very behavioral. And the, like with CBT, the C is very, very small. And the B is huge in regard to OCD treatment. Okay. This is so interesting because I find when a lot of people or at least podcasts or things that I've listened to, I always hear them use those like trendy words like CBT. Yeah. And then I'm like, what the hell does that actually what that mean? mean? Like yeah. I'm always like, break it down for me. Like this makes sense now. Now I get it. And now- and now I'm like, okay, there's a few people in my life, including myself, where I'm rethinking things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because there are specific modalities like DBT, for instance, is evidence-based and incredible for the treatment of borderline personality disorder. And like, there are certain therapies that are evidence-based and really effective for eating disorders. And I think sometimes people just think like, let me go to a general talk therapist and this is going to help. But it really, if you're dealing with something in particular, it often requires a specialist. And then like, it's important to have that specialist break down exactly what treatment is going to look like. That's really, that's really important to know because it took me almost 10 years in therapy to realize that and then to ensure and advocate for myself that I had the right therapy mm -hmm. because for so many years, I just accepted whatever I could get and it was harmful. Yes, it is. It's like eating disorders too. Like there will be clinicians who prescribe weight loss or will say things like, yeah, you want to lose weight. Let's do it. And the client is suffering from an eating disorder. So it really, like it can be so harmful if the therapist doesn't understand the diagnosis that the client is dealing with and the evidence-based treatment. No, I completely agree with you. And I think a lot of it, like in Canada, I don't know about the States, but it shifted to like our family doctors are treating mental health. And for instance, I got prescribed Wellbutrin when I have really bad anxiety and that put me, yeah. Same. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Did it like put you out? Because I was like anxious off the, I was like off the charts. Yeah. I ended up in like, um, I don't know what you have in the States, but it's called the Canadian Association of Mental Health. And they have like a crisis hospital. And I ended up there like with my mom and they're yeah. like, we can't give you lorazepam. And then my mom's yelling. And then yeah. they're like, well, why are you on Wellbutrin? And I'm like, cause my family doctor prescribed it. And I've been no. here 15 hours and you just like shoved me to the side. Yeah. Like, you have awful. these doctors, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And it also takes like my psychiatrist who's fantastic. Like he specializes in psychiatry for OCD and I'm not a doctor. Okay. So I can't give medical advice, yes. but there are certain medications and there are specific dosages that are effective in treating OCD. So if okay. you're like, I went to a couple of psychiatrists who had no idea what they were doing. One of them yeah. put me on Clonopin daily, which also didn't help, which like speaks to the amount of anxiety I was experiencing. But I mean, some of these psychiatrists had absolutely no idea what they were doing. So it not only takes like finding a psychiatrist, but finding the right psychiatrist. Like, I completely doctor, agree with that. Yeah. A family doctor is probably not going to understand like proper medication for OCD. Or That's exactly disorder. it. Now with like, with OCD, are there certain like... I'm trying to think about this. Like there's a lot of disorders that get misdiagnosed as other disorders. What's common for OCD to be diagnosed as or misdiagnosed as? 
Yeah. So a lot of the time, if a therapist like doesn't understand OCD, they'll say like, you have generalized anxiety disorder. Like you're Mm. just anxious. And the person is like, no, it's a lot more than anxiety. Like I'm having these unwanted thoughts, but the therapist has no idea what OCD entails. So very often generalized anxiety. Um, Sometimes people will get a diagnosis of psychosis. Like, okay, you're having these thoughts. You must be hearing things or you're having intrusive images, you must be seeing things. People can get psychosis or schizophrenia. Um, I would say mainly generalized anxiety or the therapist actually thinks that the client is the content of their thoughts, which is horrifying. Yeah, when you say content of the thoughts, like they truly, like they're not disassociated from their thoughts, they are that. Well, like the therapist might think that. So the client will be like, I'm having these really scary thoughts. Like, I don't know why I'm having them. I don't like them. And some therapists might think like, okay, well, this must be because you're attracted to kids or, okay, yeah, this must be because you're in the wrong relationship. So OCD gets completely missed. Okay, I could actually see this in so many ways because mm-hmm. when you were explaining it the whole time, I'm like, this is anxiety. I'm like, this yeah. is like how everyone explains anxiety and how a lot of my anxiety traits are. But I have never been explained OCD in that way. And it's never even been a conversation, which is shocking. Totally. And like generalized anxiety is often about like more real life concerns. So like money, work, love life. Whereas with OCD, it's highly irrational. Like I was a 19 year old, you know, woman who like, I knew I was attracted to men and I got this thought that was like, what if I had sex with a child? Like I knew that it was not me. It was absolute last thing I would ever want to do. And that's what OCD looks like. It's so irrational. Or like you're like, you know, you have this newborn that you love and you have the thought, like, what if I stab it? Even though it's the last thing you'd ever want to do. Like it's, it's super irrational and it's not generally about like everyday life concerns. It's like the worst possible thing. Now, what kind of advice can you give someone to have the courage to seek help if you are having those kind of thoughts? Oh man. So definitely finding an OCD specialist and making sure that you're comfortable and like you feel safe in that environment to say your thoughts out loud. But I think what has helped me so much and what actually helped me, I think even before I sought treatment was like the OCD community that's online. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So there are a lot of like therapists who specialize in OCD that have Instagram accounts and there are OCD advocates who have really changed the game. Like Rose Cartwright is one of them. And she wrote this book called Pure. And I like, I used to, I remember reading it. I ordered it on my Kindle and I was so afraid. I'm like, oh my God, someone's going to hack my Kindle and like see that I'm reading this and they're going to think I'm like this horrible person because she experienced like something very similar to what I did, like sexually intrusive thoughts about kids and animals and family members. So I like got it on my Kindle and then I had the book shipped to me and I would literally like, I remember I went home for Thanksgiving and I was like under the covers in my room, like reading the book because I was so afraid someone was going to see But that book seriously changed my life. Like it was a woman in her twenties who was experiencing exactly what I was. And it made me realize like, okay, other people experience this. I am not alone. And I think finding that community is so powerful. I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is so eye-opening. This is so educational, but in like a very interesting way. 
Yeah. And it's like OCD is very isolating living with it. Like you feel like you're like the weirdest person ever. You feel like you're the most like fucked up human being. So to find people that have OCD, like I felt like I was meeting celebrities at first. I'm like, oh my God, you have OCD too. <laughs> because I never met anyone that had experienced what I did. And like now, obviously I have so many friends in the community. So I know a lot of people with OCD, but it used to be like this novel thing. If I would meet someone who had it, I was like, oh my God, you are my person. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so OCD is like your specialty. And then do you have other specialties that you work in as well or subspecialties? Yeah. So anxiety disorders in general, like social anxiety, phobias, um, body dysmorphia, I work with eating disorders and body focused repetitive behaviors like hair pulling and skin picking. Okay. I was interested when I read that out, I was like, is that like body checking? I was like, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. So body focused repetitive behaviors, essentially the sufferer gets really intense urges to pick their skin or to pull their hair. Okay. So I work with clients who like, you get a really strong urge that other people don't. And they'll like pull hair from their scalp or they'll pull it from their legs, their armpits, sometimes even their like vagina or penis. And it's like, it's, it's, how do I explain this? They're getting a strong urge. So it's absolutely a mental health condition, but mm -hmm. a lot of the time the person finds some kind of pleasure in the picking or pulling. Okay. Yeah. Even if they know, like, I don't want to do this, it like provides some type of relief for them. And so a lot of the work that I do with those clients is habit reversal training. So that involves like competing responses. So like, what else can you do with your hands when you're having that strong urge to pick or pull, which might okay. be like playing with a fidget toy, or it might be like knitting or doing something like that. And then habit blockers, I'll have my clients use, and that actually blocks you from being able to carry out that behavior. So for someone who picks their skin, for instance, I'll have them tape all of their fingers and maybe put a glove on. So it's like, it's actually not possible when they go up to do it to actually like do that behavior, which wow. has become a habit over time. Not only do they have strong urges, but they've like people who have BFRBs have usually done it for so long that they have, like they often, when they come to therapy, have no awareness of when they're doing it. Like their hand could be up there for like 30 minutes and they like wouldn't have known. Oh, wow. They're just on autopilot. Like it's yes. just, it's like, it's a habit and it's so difficult to like break the habit. And people often feel so much shame too, with BFRBs, even though it's not shameful at all. It's just something that they're dealing with. They feel like, Oh my God, I must be the weirdest person ever because I pick my skin or I pull my hair. I feel like that's like, for every mental illness there is like, especially like, so I'm 31 and growing up in elementary school, mental health wasn't taught. Like I just honestly yeah. thought I was sick for yeah. like until I was 19 and someone was like, yeah, this is anxiety disorder. And I was like, there is a name for this. Like I am not crazy. Like yeah. I'm not going insane. Um, and now it's much more commonplace to talk about it in school and there's treatments. Whereas like mm -hmm. I grew up in a house where like, therapy wasn't something you did and we didn't talk about our emotions no like yeah um so I think there's like a lot of relief sometimes and knowing that you're not alone and there isn't something wrong with you like this is just a disorder and you can yeah. get treatment with that 
Um, something I did want to discuss because I'm super intrigued by this. And I feel like a lot of people use the term body dysmorphia mm-hmm. from a clinical perspective, from a psychotherapist perspective. What does that mean? Okay. So body dysmorphia, like, and specifically body dysmorphic disorder. Like if a person is diagnosed with that, it's like, this is going to sound so simple, but there is like dysmorphia about a specific body part. Okay. So like they can't see it clearly. It's essentially like the person is looking in the mirror, but what they see is like, they're looking in a fun size mirror. So it might be that they think their nose is massive when their nose is like pretty normal with BDD, there could be like minor flaws per se in appearance, Yes. but the person is like fixated on it to a degree that nobody else is that like somebody without the disorder doesn't have. And then there's the compulsions essentially of BDD, which are all of the behaviors to kind of hide or camouflage or get rid of the perceived flaw. So it's essentially like an over fixation on perceived flaws. And the person often sees themselves very differently than the world sees them. Like someone could say, you know, no, your nose isn't big or, you know, your you know, your cheeks are an average size and the person just like has no awareness that like of what they actually look like. Okay. I'm so intrigued by this, like coming from the body positive self-love space and like, you know, being obsessed with diet culture for most of my life. At what point is it being potentially insecure versus being body dysmorphic? That's a really good question. So body dysmorphia, number one, it impairs functioning. Like my clients who have it will spend hours a day doing these behaviors to hide their perceived flaws. Like they'll mirror check multiple times a day, or they wear different clothing to cover up because they don't want something to be seen. Um, I've had clients who like, they fear that they have acne when they like, like really bad acne when they actually don't. And they'll spend hours a day reapplying makeup. So it's like, it's an excessiveness in the behaviors and they don't see themselves clearly. Where someone who's insecure, you know, might, they might feel like, you know, I'm not happy with this body part, but they generally can probably see that body part for what it is. And they're not performing an excessive amount of compulsions to try and hide or camouflage it. Really? Okay. So is it usually just like one specific body part, like say my nose, or can it be like your whole body, like thinking maybe you're much larger than you are? Yeah. And this is where like, there's such a, um, there's such a fine line. I feel like between like what is considered like eating disorder territory and what is body dysmorphia. And a lot of the time people with eating disorders have body dysmorphia. So it can be like about your entire body, And like, for me in those instances, I'm like, you know, the diagnosis doesn't even essentially matter because the treatment is like the same, but it can be a specific body part. Um, like I want to mention a lot of people deal with it, like with their penis or their vagina, like they think that their penis is much smaller or much larger than it actually is or that their vagina is somehow deformed. So they avoid having sex altogether. Yeah, it's really like it impairs functioning to a large degree. I've had clients who have had like multiple surgeries, um, obviously never enough because they get the surgery and then it's like, it still looks fucked up. Let me get another one. 
So it's very severe. Whereas somebody who has insecurity is like, okay, I don't feel great about this, but they're not going out of their way to like hide it. Or they're also not getting all of those intrusive thoughts, like multiple times a day about that body part. It's, it's so intriguing. I always thought body dysmorphia was completely intertwined with eating disorders. Like I didn't no, it doesn't. It, a lot of the time it's not so like the person will really? like have, you know, unwanted thoughts about like their penis or I've had clients like their fingers. They think their fingers are like too small and it really impairs their functioning like to a large degree. Like won't go on job interviews, won't shake people's hands. So it's not just eating. Wow. Yeah. It could be receding hairline. It could be, I mean, it could be a number of different things. I had no clue. Yeah. And a lot of people with BDD also don't understand what they're experiencing or they feel really ashamed of it. You know, they feel Mm. so ashamed because I get like, I'll have clients say like, I'm not narcissistic. Like, I don't mean to make this all about me. And like, it's so much different than narcissism because it's not like a, it's not vanity. The person is really, really anxious and distressed because they think they have a flaw. It's not like they're in love with their appearance and that's why they're in front of the mirror all day. What, what led you to these specialties in particular? Like, is it all experience you have with or just interest? So OCD for sure. Um, I have OCD. I did have anorexia when I was 19 and a ton of body dysmorphia with that or no, anorexia was when I was 17. It was like right before the OCD. So that was like a lovely cocktail. But um, I, so I understand body dysmorphia. I understand eating disorders and obviously understand OCD. And like BDD and OCD are similar in certain ways. So like I've, I've really focused on specializing in the treatment of both disorders. Like they're both treated with exposure and response prevention. Actually, intrigued because there's like a part of me that wants to divulge into the anorexia and to talk about eating disorders but we're already at an hour so I'm like is that just a whole nother podcast like I'd love to have you on again to discuss that because I actually found a really hard time and someone who's a professional like to speak on that in a more proper way just not someone who's only had lived experience I would love to. And I, I feel like, yeah. Like I've, I don't usually talk about like my eating disorder because like that was before the OCD. So that would be amazing. Yeah. Like I just feel like that's a topic, especially with like the community that I have mm-hmm. um, that I really love to dive deep in. And I feel like OCD is one that I've just never got yeah. to learn enough about. And it is one of your specialties and you have this awesome account that speaks about it and many other things too. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, you're the type of person where I feel like I could talk for hours about all of this and just like, listen and be like, tell me more. <laughs> That's amazing. And I will say like OCD and eating disorders, like my anorexia and my OCD felt similar, like to a certain Really? Degree. Yeah. Touch on that a bit more? Yeah, sure. So like with the OCD, obviously there's the obsession and the compulsion. With anorexia, there's an obsession and a compulsion as well. My obsession was like with the way that my body looked and with food. And the compulsion was like the restriction of food. It was over-exercising. I would be at the gym at 5.30 in the morning. This was my 
sophomore year of college. So I would wake up. Sometimes I would stand outside of the gym before it was even open at 530 in the morning. And I had to go and work out. If I didn't, which only happened once, it felt like it felt like my world was going to end. Like it was so incredibly anxiety producing if I didn't go. So I'd have to like compulsively work out. I restricted food. I like had compulsions of like eating at specific times during the day. Like I would have to eat my lunch at this hour or I couldn't eat past this hour. So really like there are obsessions and compulsions in both OCD and eating disorders are just about different things. Wow. Now, when did you, or did someone bring it up to you? Did you know that you were struggling with an eating disorder? So I, like I had struggled with eating disorders my whole life and I didn't, um, I didn't realize it. Like I used to binge as a kid and I only realized that when I started my therapy with Lori, like in looking back at my childhood, I realized like, oh my God, I used to binge all the time as like a coping mechanism for like trauma and what else. But when I was a sophomore, like it started out as a diet. I was like, I really want to lose weight. And then it just like something clicked in my brain and there was like no longer a choice at that point. So I lost a ton of weight. No one in my family like did anything. I remember I flew home for Christmas and the only thing my mom said was don't lose any more weight. And that was it. And so I had some family where I went to school actually. Like I had a cousin who like at one point was like, have you considered counseling? You know, like I've talked to a counselor, but I had no idea what therapy was. And I was thinking, I'm absolutely not going to talk to this counselor about like my eating issues because I also didn't, like I knew it was a problem, but I also didn't know it was a problem, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, it completely does. Yeah, and I had people come up to me, like I had friends at school who would say like, we're really concerned about you. It doesn't look like you're eating. And I would get really, really mad. You know, I'd say like, you have no idea what you're talking about. I'm fine. I look fine. I am fine. So I don't think that like, I don't think I even fully knew what it was that I was going through. And I don't think anyone was going to like get through to me either at the time, Mm -hmm. which is really hard. You know, I'm 19, I'm a sophomore in college and I feel like I lost out on a lot of like my early college experience because I wasn't eating and I lost a lot of friends because of it. That's challenging. That's really challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in order to help you, I don't know if overcome it is the right word because I don't know with an eating disorder if you ever truly do, but to start the healing, what did you do? Oh, that's a really good question. So I never actually got treatment for the eating disorder because when my OCD got really, really bad, I kind of started eating again. But I think kind of like what you just said, I don't know that I will ever be like fully cured per se of an eating disorder. Like I feel like I will have thoughts about my body and food for the rest of my life. You know, I know some people say that you can be cured. I personally don't think I'm going to be one of those people. But I have really practiced um, like prioritizing my mental health over my physical appearance. Okay. And kind of like radical acceptance of my body. You know, I recently said to somebody that I had um, been like going on some dates with, like, you know, if you don't accept my body like this is now, then like, you're just not the person for me. My body's going to change and stuff's going to start to sag when I get older. And like that, you're just not the person for me if like you aren't okay with this body. 
And like, I've started realizing, you know, there's so much more to life than worrying about food and what my body looks like. You know, I don't want to be 85 years old laying on my deathbed thinking like, so glad I ate all the kale salads and like never ate the pasta in Italy. You know, like, I just don't want to be that person. I don't. I hear that 100%. Like I went through a phase. I remember like, so recently my body positivity journey started as a weight loss journey because I'd gained like a hundred pounds when I'd been traveling and struggling with my mental health. And I had a human rights case in my university. And I was, I was going to show that you're beautiful at every shape and size. And then I started to realize like, Hey, when you were thin, you didn't love yourself. Now that you're fat, you don't love yourself. And you did some like really unhealthy things to stay thin. Like you should legitimately be dead from the restricting and the diet pills and the caffeine pills and the working out and the laxatives. And that wasn't a life. Like you were not any happier to fit into a size small than you are right now or 200 pounds, but eating that Sunday sure as a hell makes you feel a lot better Mm -hmm. than what you did then. And that's what, when you said the eating pasta in Italy, yeah, you're going to remember those moments. Those are experiences. Like why would you like, it's not, why would you want to give them up? But we've been taught in this society that looking thin is worth the sacrifice. And it's not. It's not. And like you said, like I was not any happier. I was more miserable when I was that thin because I was over exercising and it, it took over my life. Like I didn't interact with people. I didn't date. I didn't have friends. I was severely depressed. And I also, because of the body dysmorphia piece, didn't even know I was thin. So now I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I look at these pictures and I'm like, if I only knew at that point, that I had the body that I did because I still thought like I am huge. Yeah. You know? So it's like, it, it wasn't even worth it because I never even knew that I was small. It, uh, I literally, I say this all the time. I'm like, what? Like yeah. who, who was that person? Right. And like, yeah. And why did I put myself through that when at the end of the day, like I still thought I was fat, not that being fat is a problem. What? No, no, no. But I, yeah. I completely understand what you're saying because I remember, thinking like, oh, if I was thinner, maybe this guy would like me a little bit more, you know, the guy on the soccer team. And I'm like, looking back and I'm like, you were fine at 150. Yeah. Maybe getting a little too thin at 110 and you would have been fine at 180. Like there was like, you were beautiful because of your personality. Absolutely. But I find it so hard and you have to go through so much therapy and hit probably your thirties to start realizing that. Seriously, so much. And especially when it's everywhere, you know, it's diet culture, it's the media, it's these celebrities on Instagram. Mm -hmm. It's like even some therapists who promote weight loss. And I mean, it's literally everywhere. There's fat phobia in dating culture, you know, like I won't date a fat person. It's just like, it is everywhere. And it's so difficult to ignore. I completely agree. And I know you're out in California Mm -hmm. and I cannot imagine the pressure of being out there because I thought I was fat when I was in California and I was not fat. And it was just like, you see these like conventionally beautiful people who look like the magazine all the time and the pressure out there. Yeah. I say this to people often, like living in LA, I feel like is so difficult in that regard. Like you walk down Melrose and it's just like 400 Instagram models and nothing against them, right? Like, no, no, no. Yeah. But it's like, it's just like this stereotype perpetuated and people come to LA to be something, you know, to model or to act. And 
there's plastic surgery everywhere. And I feel like everywhere you look, there's this unattainable version of beauty that you're surrounded by. And then you see like, I'm not going to say a lot of men, but like, you know, even on dating apps, you know, I've been on dating apps and I'll see guys, you know, say things like, I don't know, I want someone who looks good in yoga pants. And it's just like dating in LA is so hard. Wow. That's a ridiculous statement. Right. Because people are so fixated on appearance and they're like, okay, well, if I can have like this model on Melrose, like, why do I want you? And it's just awful. It's, I, I just like, I don't get me wrong. I'm body positive in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, yeah. And even that, that's challenging, but I can't imagine what that looks like in LA. It's so awful. And like I've said, like, I do not want to raise kids here. I do not want my, like, if I have daughters, I do not want them to experience that here. Like feeling like anorexia is the only option and feeling like their body is the only thing that like their worth is derived from. Like, I just don't want that for them. And like, sometimes I find it's, um, kind of funny, not funny, but I gained a lot of my weight in California because mm-hmm. the food is so good oh, there. So good. Yeah. It's exquisite. And I remember yeah. asking him like, how is everyone so thin? Like, have they not right. had the waffles and chicken? Yeah. I was like, cause I wouldn't give it up. Like, I don't care if I gain the hundred pounds, I would not give up those food experiences ever. Right. And like, I remember I worked at an eating disorder clinic once and we were, we were doing like a huge staff meeting in this office room And the director of the meeting literally pointed out the window and he was like, we live in one of the most orthorexic cities, like in the U S he points down the street. And like, you would literally just see from that window, like two to three different, like smoothie juice cleanse places. And he was like, there, there, and there just by looking out his window. So LA is so orthorexic. People are so fixated on appearance and like the green juice and the celery juice. It's so true. Cause like when I lived in San Diego, I was only there for three months and I did my first 10 day juice cleanse. Yeah. Traveling. Yeah. What? <laughs> oh yeah. That's such a And I was traveling in a car going to Lake Palm Springs and yeah. like going to LA. And I was like only drinking six juices a day. And that was yep. like, I remember my boss, we both did it. It was totally normal. You have to do it every few months. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is California. You need to detox. And yeah, that's Well, that's it too. It's like, it's not even the, like, it's not woman's like fault. You know, it's like you in LA, it's like, or in New York or wherever people yes. model, like I've had friends who like are models or who do model and they will literally be told by their like agents or casting directors, like you have an inch to lose on your waist. And wow. Like, oh, tiny already. So it's like, it's not even their fault. It's like these standards that they feel like they have to live up to. And that's what people like you and me are working on changing. It's hard. It's hard even because hard. I find that like, I try to preach this and I know you're a psychotherapist so you professionally do this Mm -hmm. but then you have to look in the mirror and try to internalize it yourself after you're saying it to everyone around you and it's not easy it's so hard and I will tell you sometimes I feel like a fraud where I'm like you know I I know this like I logically am like I'm a feminist and I'm like fuck diet culture I hate people who prescribe weight loss like I'm so into like destroying the patriarchy and like their role in like diet culture. But then I look in the mirror sometimes and I think like, wow, if I lost 10 pounds, I would look better in a bathing suit. Oh my God. I'm like, I hate that I have these thoughts. Like I do, but I've had to just accept, like I can have these thoughts and I don't need to act on them. 
And just like every other woman out there and like some men too, like we are victims of diet culture and we are like, we're going to experience that as well. But it makes me feel like a fraud. I feel like I have imposter syndrome sometimes. I like, I hear that so mm-hmm. hard especially I've been struggling with a lot of back pain recently I've been talking about a lot on Instagram and the easiest thing to say is if I just lost the weight it would go away and then I have to remind myself though that it was there before the weight and it's this constant battle and I think that's what people don't realize is that like you can be a professional in this field you can be an advocate but that doesn't mean that 100% of the time you are amazing at doing it oh, yourself yeah. it's still yeah. gonna be hard of course. Yeah. Like therapists struggle to advocates struggle to actually, I'd love to leave off on that note. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a therapist. Like say, is it okay to call you a therapist? Absolutely. Okay. And you have a therapist. So, Oh yeah. Like that's normal, right? Like, oh, that's so normal. And I like, I love my therapy. I tell this to everyone. I'm like, I live for my therapy. Like right? I love it. It is so normal. And we need to start normalizing therapy. Therapy is amazing. Oh, it's incredible. Whether or not you have a diagnosis or you just want to grow. I think every single human being on this planet could use therapy. And I really wish there was like less stigma surrounding it. I think the moment you stop wanting to grow and learn is the moment you should just die. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) What is the point? I agree with you. And on that note, where can people find you if they want to reach out for help or if they just want to follow along? Like you've got an amazing social media account. Where can they check you out? So Instagram, it's at obsessively ever after. And my website, allegracastins.com. My email address should be on my website. I should probably check that after this. Um, But yeah, I would say my website and my Instagram are my two main platforms. Perfect. And I will definitely add that to the show notes below so they can check that out and see who you are. And I want to thank you again for coming on. You have to come on again. I want to. This was so much fun. I feel like I could talk to you forever. I know. Me too. And by the way, like I'm dying my hair blue after this like oh after my seeing your hair I'm like this is please. happening oh yeah please do it's the best like I feel like so myself you look so trendy like Thank this whole time I'm just staring at you and I'm like <laughs> I love that I'm like it's that little silvery like Thank you for listening to Glassbreakers Podcast. You can find all the details from today's episode in the show notes. If you're looking for our exclusive promo codes, that's where you'll find them as well. For additional podcast information, head over to kilologan.com underneath the podcast section. To check us out on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Glassbreakers Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and write a review. And until next time, thanks for listening. Bye.